Welcome to the Meme Stream, the podcast following meme students, present and past, on their adaptive walks of life as they embark on a career in evolutionary biology. The Meme is a master's program that enables upcoming evolutionary biologists from all over the globe to study and research in Europe. This podcast will travel all over Europe and the world, leaping, as Dawkins says, from brain to brain, meme to meme, telling tales of our scientific ventures and research projects. I'm Kate Garland, one of your travelling hosts and creator of the Meme Stream, coming to you from Montpellier, France, and this is episode four. This episode is brought to you by me, a very excited version of me, because I had the pleasure of interviewing the amazing and intelligent Chelsea Little. Chelsea and I had this talk during the Evolutionary Biology Conference in Montpellier. We discussed her past meme projects studying the long-term consequences of short-term herbivory in the Arctic tundra and its relationship to climate change. And just to remind you, this podcast will very quickly plunge into the pool of evolutionary thought and, in this episode, ecological thought. So if you ever find yourself lost, have a look at the Meme Stream's blog for extra information about Chelsea's project. And don't forget, the main aim of the Meme Stream is to keep this conversation going. So if you have any questions, just ask it at the bottom of each blog, where either the interviewed scientist or another helpful and knowledgeable meme can answer you. And now over to my excited past self and Chelsea. Hi everybody, um, today I'm here with Chelsea Little on the meme stream at the ESEP conference in Montpellier. And um, today we're going to talk about one of our thesis projects. Hi Chelsea, it's nice to see you and Hi. meet you. <laughs> nice to see you too and hello yeah. everyone listening. Um, so I think the first question um, for meme is always like, what was your meme trajectory and where did you start? Where did you end up? Yeah, um, I started in Uppsala. Mm-hmm. I am a cross-country skier, so I was extremely excited to move to oh. Sweden. Uh, then I did my second semester in Montpellier mm-hmm. here. And then I actually, I would say I moved around maybe even more than the normal meme experience because I did an external project in the summer um, doing fieldwork in the Swiss Alps, mm-hmm. and then so I did three months of fieldwork, and then was in Munich for three months writing up, and then I went back to Sweden to prepare for my second thesis, um, and the fieldwork for that was in Svalbard and northern Sweden. So I was really moving like every two to three months at that oh, point. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. yeah. And I think we've invited you today to talk about your second thesis project, the one yeah. in Svalbard. Can yeah. you tell us like me a bit more about that? Um, maybe just a short summary first? Of yeah, it? sure. So um, maybe the first thing to say is that um, it was more or less an ecology project. Oh, okay, so. cool, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we were working in the Arctic tundra in mm-hmm. Svalbard. So for those who don't know, it's an island that's part of a big archipelago way north of Norway. Oh, so it's wow. at, I think, 78 degrees north, mm-hmm. maybe 72. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's very high Arctic, mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to be able to work in some field sites that had had an ongoing warming experiment for oh, the last okay. 11 summers. Great. Um, so... Yeah, I was doing vegetation surveys to look at the effect of warming on the tundra community, 
Um, and then, yeah, also some things about herbivory and how that affects communities. Okay, so very basic question. I'm more a mammal person. So what exactly is tundra? Right, so I guess it's probably defined in a like climate zone type of way. Yeah. But when you're in the tundra, it's just a plant community that is very sparse and low. Mm -hmm. The environmental conditions are so harsh that mm. not many things live there. So... Yeah, nothing tall, there's no trees. I didn't see trees for like two months oh, or something. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of dwarf shrubs. Mm -hmm. um, all of the plants, except for one species, were perennial there okay. because the growing season is just too short to like have your whole life cycle <laughs> in, in one year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just a very limited plant community. Okay, great. Yeah. And so you were looking at these plants that are so... I guess sturdy and you would think they would be fine with something as scary as climate change but they, what did you find in your study? Yeah, um, we actually found that they were I would say more resilient to climate warming than okay. we might have expected mm -hmm. so one reason that it was really exciting to work up there is there's a lot of work on climate change and tundra communities in like mountain regions and in the lower Arctic so thinking of like Northern Norway or Canada or Alaska, but there's really not so much work in the high Arctic. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the structures that were providing the warming were warming by maybe a degree and a half Celsius. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I think it's just, it was maybe fairly beneficial for those plants. Yeah. You know, they're so environmentally limited. Mm -hmm. um, and they also maybe don't have that much capacity to respond. Yeah. So we definitely saw some shifts in which species were dominant, mm -hmm. um, how they were doing, how tall they got yeah. in the summer. Um, but yeah, but not as drastic as some shifts that other people have seen in warming experiments in okay. other places. Yeah, yeah great. <laughs> and you said that it was um, the effect of like warming temperatures. How did you, what devices were you using to warm the temperatures on yeah, the Yeah, so there are these um, plexiglass hexagons. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, they're about, oh gosh, I'm going to get this wrong, but maybe a couple meters across. Mm -hmm. And so um, my supervisor at the beginning of every summer would put these things out in the tundra. And then yeah in the same place every year oh. and then collect them in the winter so they didn't get destroyed by the snow. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it's just a passive sort of greenhouse device that traps a little bit of warm air. Very so low tech. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it, I think it's things like that in ecology um, that you, it's very simplistic designs yes. that are really <laughs> beneficial to studying. Like if you make it too crazy, then it's just not going to work yeah. out for you. So yeah. that's really awesome. And um, what what eats tundra up there? Like what is what is yeah. the herbivore that's eating it? Um, so there's some insect herbivores. Oh, okay. um, there's also reindeer. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. That was cool. We, we saw a bunch of reindeer mm -hmm. and I even saw one of them climb inside one of these plexiglass structures uh -huh. at one point and it was kind of standing in there awkwardly yeah. with all its feet scrunched together eating mm -hmm. the delicious warmed tundra. Uh -huh. so, yeah. <laughs> and um, so what was the, was there an interaction sort of between that um, the herbivory and the climate warming and the right. effect on the tundra? So the herbivory that we were looking at was actually um, it was a manipulation that had been done in the first three years of the experiment. Okay. So and it was using geese, actually. Oh, okay. I should have mentioned that. There's also geese. Okay, that's a good one. But yeah, so they had um, captured some geese. They'd put them into these uh, 
plots and different densities are like basically for different amounts of time to forage. And so, yeah, in the very beginning of this experiment, it was a factorial design mm -hmm. looking at the warming and this goose grazing. And then the warming continued for all 11 years and the goose grazing stopped. And so I was also looking at whether there was any sort of signature of this grazing manipulation mm -hmm. from before. And we didn't find very much. It was just okay. a little bit of a nuanced mm -hmm. um, change, for instance, the, a lot of the dominant species flowered more in the warmed okay. plots, and some of them even more in the warmed plots mm. that had this high grazing oh, okay. um, treatment. But the main effects were just of the warming, which I guess makes sense because it had been, I think, eight years since the grazing. Yeah. <laughs> and so you would have had a course in, um, like in evolutionary biology before, yeah. and so in the back of the, your mind were you coming up with possible explanations to how this shift could be happening um, from an um, evolutionary perspective? Or? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, we definitely think about um, adaptation to climate, mm -hmm. but I think one thing that's really interesting about um, the system that I was working in is, first of all, the plants are also long-lived. It's yeah. not, um, yeah, I think adaptation doesn't necessarily happen very fast mm -hmm. there, and then also, there's not a lot of like dispersal between the island and the mainland. Mm. It's like quite far from the rest of Norway. Yeah. So there's probably not that much gene flow. I don't yeah. know, maybe somebody will correct me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and there's not even so much like colonization of new species from, yeah. from other warmer places. So yeah, it's I think that all of these evolutionary responses that we think of are just yeah more slow there. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's like such a long-term study too yes. to be able to capture that over so many generations yeah. would be difficult. Yeah. And have has anyone um, sort of tried to get at that the evolutionary explanation by doing studies like reciprocal transplants on different latitudinal gradients that yes. you've heard of? Or? think so yeah 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 because that's just <laughs> something sure. I was I learned yeah. about in Uppsala yeah. and I was like when I um, right. was listening to you I was like oh maybe that could be something that right. could sort of further disentangle so we, I mean we, de we definitely know that um, there is you know those populations at super high latitudes even if there's species that you can find sort of throughout the tundra biome yeah. do have different trait values so they are differentiated mm -hmm. um, cool. but I don't know really of any yeah. Yeah. There could be, there could be sure. or maybe it could be a future yeah. study yeah. or something like that. And then yeah. talking about that, have you? Um, ha what have been sort of the implications of your study's findings? Did you get a publication out of yeah. it? Or, yeah, you yes, did. Yes, I did. Yeah, so it's published in environmental research letters, mm -hmm. and I think to me one of the most interesting things that we found was so in a lot of these warming experiments in plant communities, you find very quickly this responsive biomass, yeah. so they grow more. And it's not really clear if this is a response that can be sustained in the long term, okay. partly because most studies don't run for that long. Yeah. So, you know, maybe you have three years of funding and mm -hmm. that's it. And so we didn't find any really major differences in biomass, but we did find that in plots that had been warmed, there was a lot more accumulation of dead plant material. Okay. And so it's a bit difficult to figure out exactly why that is, if maybe there was a response of above ground biomass and then some things died, or if things are just turning over faster. But um, I think it has some interesting implications for the ecosystem in terms of like biogeochemical cycling, yeah. nutrient availability, mm -hmm. which is 
not really my yeah <laughs> my field, but um, yeah, I think it was something. not something we were looking for necessarily, but yeah. it was a really clear pattern. So, oh, okay. Um, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And you said it's a long-term study. Is it still continuing now? Or? It is not still continuing oh, okay. now. So um, yeah, I think the the learning structures were taken down last year maybe mm -hmm. but that was cool I wasn't part of it then at that point but I think um, my supervisor did some destructive sampling you know I think a challenge of these long-term studies is you have to try to sample things without disrupting yeah. them and especially the tundra is very fragile so oh, okay really you know, just to <laughs> survey and count the plants we had this set up with like two sawhorses with a ladder across and we were yeah. like dangling down <laughs> to count them so we didn't oh, step on the tundra because yeah. it's like very fragile. Yeah. I'm sure it was very exciting for her to finally be able to tear everything yeah. up and weigh it and count <laughs> it again. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And um, is there similar studies um, like those long-term studies being done on a global level? Or? Yes. Yeah. So um, I actually... So the story of how I ended up with this project was I was volunteering at a conference oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, about the, um, what's called the International Tundra Experiment. Oh, okay. So yeah, there are these passive warming experiments mm -hmm. in tundra all around the globe. And um, yeah, at this conference I met uh, my supervisor, Elizabeth Cooper, who invited me to come work with her in Svalbard. And so I've been able to be part of that network, yeah. which was just an amazing random opportunity yeah. that I'm very happy I stumbled into. But yeah, so my data, um, I contributed to every, I don't know, I would say three to five years, this group plans some big data analyses wow. using the data from all of the sites. So this one was about traits. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there were 117 study wow. sites around the world and maybe 150 authors. Um, wow. And so yeah, that, uh, Will be published in Nature, mm -hmm. um, and our findings were that uh, for these species that are found throughout the tundra biome, there is differences in trade values um, according to summer temperature, mm -hmm. and this also is modified by soil moisture, which is I think really important to think about in the context of climate change. And then also just some interesting, you know, many of these sites were long term, and so we could look at how the traits changed over. 10 or 20 years with just background climate warming. Mm. Um, and most of the traits um, did not change as much over that time period as you would have expected based on the measurements made in different places with different temperatures. And so I think we often think that we can do what's called a space for time substitution. So go sample different sites that have the future climate there now and infer, you know, what would this species do there. But this suggests that actually maybe they won't be able to adapt and change fast enough. Mm -hmm. um, and the spatial distribution of variation is very different than what we could actually see happening uh -huh. in the future. Okay, so um, that's really fascinating. So people try and project what might be happening by looking at different environmental samples, but yes. that might not be realistic enough for right. what's currently going right. to occur. Right. right, and I think, I mean, it's still a useful research strategy, but yeah, yeah I mean, a great example is if you have a mountain sampling from low elevation to high elevation, mm. and saying, well, maybe in the future, the high elevation parts will look more like the low elevation ones yeah. do now, but there's some limitation to the mm. conclusions you can take from studies like yeah. that, I guess, yeah. 
And you mentioned how you were at a conference and someone offered you this sort of yeah. very um, sort of out of the box project. Um, what drew you to being wanting to do that and sort of starting a project? Um, I guess, well, I really like to be outside. Yeah. So I guess that's why I'm an ecologist um, in some ways. So yeah, I was looking for projects that involved field work. Um, I love the mountains, mm -hmm. so. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I don't know, it was yeah. just, and I think I was also very interested in working on climate change and doing something that I thought could be a little bit useful. Yeah. Um, I'm maybe a little bit jaded now, I'm not sure if, like, how useful yeah. <laughs> all of our science always is, but, um, yeah, it was really just in line with my interests, and so, yeah, I would urge people to just talk to people at conferences, introduce yourself, right. you never know where that will lead, so, yeah. That's really important to know, because I think a lot of scientists can be a bit shy. And yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm totally yeah. shy, I mean, this was like a real victory for yeah. me. We'd rather talk to our, like, study organisms than, yeah. like, actual people, yeah, totally. definitely. And so, what are you doing now? Are you still doing climate um, change-based study in science, or? Not so much, so I'm finishing my PhD. PhD right now at the University of Zurich. Yeah, um, I'm I'm still thinking about global change, I guess. But um, in the context of my PhD, that has more to do with land use change okay. and invasive species. So I'm looking at biodiversity in streams of freshwater microvertebrates and um, their role in ecosystem functioning. Um, how that is controlled by things like density dependence and competition. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And have you um, found yourself applying still concepts of evolutionary biology to your understanding? Yeah, I think um, I'm really happy with where I am in Zurich. It's a place where there's a lot of ecology and a lot of evolution. And there's people in my lab who are doing very like classic evolution stuff with, um, for instance, evolution at range fronts and uh, range expansions. And so... I think, I don't think any of my work is really exactly evolution, but certainly I find that having this background in evolutionary biology makes me think about things in a much broader way mm -hmm. and be able to talk to people and get new ideas that maybe inspire what I do, even if I'm not, you know, I don't do any lab work that's yeah. population genetics. Or, <laughs> but um, yeah, I do find it really helpful to just how I think about science. Mm, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, evolution and ecology are really, they're both everything that we study. Yeah. We just think about it one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important to, to have a good understanding of, of yeah. both. I mean, I'm now thinking about what to do in the future, and I would love to have some more direct ties to mm -hmm. evolutionary work yeah. in my ecology in the future. But yeah, now I'm just nailing down community ecology yeah. before I try to... <laughs> one <laughs> step at a time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And um, so apart from when you were, um, you know, on pieces of timber hovering over the tundra, <laughs> what did you do um, during your spare time? Was there spare time or how did you cope essentially doing like, yeah. such intense field work? During the field work, uh, we, I don't know, we had a bit of spare time. Well, so one thing was in Svalbard in the summer, I mean, it's like 24 hours a day. Oh, wow. It's like Uppsala, but just yeah. more. <laughs> so, yeah, it, we definitely had spare time. Have to remind yourself to like go to bed. <laughs> um, but yeah, we were able to do. I have a research assistant. That's what I'm saying. We so yeah, I applied for funding from 
the Svalbard Science Forum and to pay for my own travel and also a research assistant. So um, yeah, we were able to do some hiking and some exploring wow. there, um, but yeah, not so much. It was really tiring to be out there in the field. I love field work, but this was in some ways particularly hard. It's very cold, even in the middle of the summer. <laughs> it's like maybe just above freezing some days and it's very windy and so by the time you come back at the end of the day you just want to like eat a huge amount of food and you know be lazy yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think that's fair enough <laughs> yeah. but i think in me more generally yeah. i um yeah i mentioned i, I like cross-country skiing and running and so i tried to always get outside and do something and that was kind of how it's a good time to think and have yeah. some time to yourself and also get scientific ideas sometimes when you're just out there. Um, but yeah, that was probably the main, main way to stay Great. stay a little balanced. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, that, was that something you would recommend, having that balance? Because sometimes it's so hard to have it. Definitely, yeah. I think it's really important. Um, and yeah, it can be anything, but just make sure you're doing something. And that was actually... One thing that was really great about Uppsala for me was that I was able to join a little cross-country ski team oh, up wow. there. So yeah. I, you know, I made some a few Swedish friends mm -hmm. and um, just had like I think in Mimi we're a really tight group. I mean, I'm staying yeah. here in Montpellier with a bunch of friends from me, but <laughs> yeah. I think it's also important to have some friends that you that are not doing the same thing that you're doing yeah. because sometimes you just need to get out of the bubble mm -hmm. and so yeah I would really urge people wherever they are if it's possible to find some club to join that's like non-academic yeah. especially just you know I think it's also easy for us to just have our friends that we're traveling around with and not get to know the local place in the same way yeah. so if you can find a club or something that allows you to meet some people who there for longer it's always a good thing yeah, yeah. that's excellent and are you um, part of any sort of clubs in that now or hiking groups now during um, your PhD not really I've been doing a lot of hiking and skiing and running in Switzerland okay it's great, great. yeah <laughs> um, often by myself or just with friends ah, okay yeah. that's still lovely though <laughs> yes. in Switzerland too it's not that bad is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's great um, I think another question um, I guess the final um, food thought question would be, um, when can you remember the first time in your life maybe pondering the concept of evolution or maybe the effect of evolution on something like ecology? Can you sort of remember the time? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a great answer for that. Mm -hmm. I, I can't think of the first time I thought of it outside of like class, but I did um, in high school. My high school biology teacher gave us this exercise, which we also did in Uppsala actually, mm -hmm. but in so basically he provided us with a bunch of objects and had us make a phylogeny of them. And we could do it however we wanted, but we had to write down what traits we thought mm. were important and which were changing. And in Uppsala we do this with, I think, nails and screws. Yes, I did that too. Oh, we yeah. did it with candy. Oh, so. that sounds better. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, but that was like one of my favorite labs that we did. Um, it definitely got me interested. But I guess um, maybe a bit later, so I have a background in ecology and I was working as a research technician and I read The Beak of the Finch, which is a great book about Peter and Rosemary Grant's work in the Galapagos. And that's really what made me want to go study evolutionary biology. I was like, you know, 
this is so cool. This yeah. is what I want to do. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, yeah, I Googled evolutionary biology masters Europe and mm -hmm. meme came up and that's here I am now. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Um, that's yeah, such a good answer and it really um, is those inspirational books that yeah. um, sort of catch your eye and yeah, things yeah. like that. Um, the Yeah, I guess the last question as well is where can we find you now like to catch up on your research and also your um, crazy hikes that you're yeah. going on too and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, I have a website. Mm -hmm. It's www.chelseajeanlittle.com and it has some science stuff and a link to my blog about hiking in Switzerland. Oh, so if okay. anyone needs suggestions of where to go hiking in Switzerland, <laughs> I have a little guide. Um, yeah, I'm also on Twitter at, at ChelskyLittle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Great. Thank you so much for coming today. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank okay. you. And thank you to everyone listening and joining us on our fourth episode and the incredible voyage of the meme stream. Remember, you can read up more about Chelsea's work on the meme stream blog and ask any questions about what you heard there. The meme stream is brought to you by the Erasmus Mundus Masters Program in Evolutionary Biology. Special thanks to the meme stream team for all their hard work and dedication to the project. Our intro music is written by the artist Magella and Little Diddy in the end was found in the depths of the internet by YouTuber Sunil Singh. You can follow the meme stream on SoundCloud to listen to new episodes. And please always remember to rate and share our podcast to help us adapt and evolve. Yeah, it's evolution. Yeah, it's Darwin's revolution. And it teaches us the history.